I remembered one more reason why you might want to come to engage this Wednesday. We're serving Coke floats. Now, you can't get anything better than that, so it'll be good. Today we're going to be looking at a passage from Luke, Luke chapter 7, and this passage follows immediately after Jesus' Sermon on the Plain as it's presented in Luke. Uh, Now, if you probably are more familiar with the Sermon on the Mount than the Sermon on the Plain, but the Sermon on the Plain had a lot of the same material as the Sermon on the Mount, which uh, is good for several reasons. I like repetition, and it also tells me it's okay for preachers to talk about the same thing, all right? If Jesus could recycle his material, then don't get on to me when I do that too. All right, Luke chapter 7. Would you be standing, please, for this is the Word of God. After Jesus had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. A centurion there had a slave whom he valued highly and who was ill and close to death. When he heard about Jesus, he sent some Jewish elders to him, asking him to come and heal his slave. When they came to Jesus, they appealed to him earnestly, saying, He is worthy of having you do this for him, for he loves our people, and it is he who built our synagogue for us. And Jesus went with them. But when he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends to say to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you. But only speak the word, and let my servant be healed. For I also am a man set under authority, with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my slave, do this, and the slave does it. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed at him. And turning to the crowd that followed him, he said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. When those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the slave in good health. May God bless the reading of his word. Some of you old timers might remember a company that was an oil and gas well servicing company called the Western Company. Does that ring a bell with anyone? I think it's been sold several times. I believe it's now owned by BJ. But anyway, the Western Company back in years ago was owned by Eddie Childs, who at the same time I think owned the Texas Rangers, if I remember right. And he did something really unusual. He did a lot of television advertising about his well-servicing company. Now, that's kind of strange because television advertising is very expensive, and most people that advertise on television advertise products that have a broad appeal. The audience who owns oil wells is somewhat limited, wouldn't you agree? And yet he kind of handled that. Because at the end of his commercials, he always had an attractive girl look at the camera and say, if you don't have an oil well, get one. All right, that's right. Now, I want to tell you, that's good advice, all right? 
And, and I'll pass that on to, if you don't have an oil well, well, I think it's a good idea to get one. However, not all of us can do that. What we want to talk about today is something that is more valuable than oil wells and gas wells, something that is more easily attainable than oil wells and gas wells. And definitely, if you don't have one of these, my advice to you is to get one. I want to talk about spiritual heroes and mentors. Now, I know we talk about that a lot. That's why I threw in the thing that Jesus repeated himself too. But this is important. It is so important if we want our faith to grow that we have identified in our hearts, in our minds, those men and women who are running ahead of us in our faith. Men and women that we admire for their spiritual maturity and the depth of their faith. And we make effort to be with those people in order to learn from them and let their faith deepen ours. This is, by the way, the original spiritual growth program. In churches these days, we're always brainstorming and trying to come up with different ways that we can help people grow spiritually. And there are a lot of different methods that are very effective. However, method number one from the very beginning was this. Paul would say, imitate me. Or he would say, find those who are spiritually mature, your leaders in faith, and follow them. Examine their faith and notice the outcome of their faith. So Paul would agree with me that if you want to grow as a Christian, if you want to grow as a disciple of Jesus Christ, then find yourself a spiritual mentor or hero or two or three or four. Because faith is best passed from person to person. You can gain faith by reading, especially reading Scripture. You can deepen your faith in so many ways. But I want to tell you that the absolute most effective way, just as I believe the Holy Spirit flows easier from person to person, so does faith. So if you don't have a spiritual hero, get one. Now, this is one reason I love church so much. There's many reasons why I'm a church person and love it so dearly. But one of the great advantages of church is that we have a lot of people sitting in this room right now who are spiritual heroes, spiritual mentors. They are people who have lived their faith. They are people with a deep faith. They are people that know what it's like to walk with Jesus. And this has been true of church since I said the very beginning. I started being around this church almost 40 years ago. And there are people that used to sit in these pews that have stretched me and pushed me and led me in my faith. And I am forever grateful to them for that. But there are people right here today that can do that for us as well that we can look to them and spend our time with them and ask questions with them and pray with them so that our faith can be deepened and broadened. Now, we can also find spiritual heroes in history. 
One of the great advantages of being a literate society with all kinds of resources, we can learn about people of the past. And even though it's not quite as effective as, as, as touching the other person and being in their presence, I know one of my great heroes is Francis of Assisi. And uh, so privileged, one of the highlights of my life so far was standing in Assisi not long ago and standing in, uh, well, I couldn't get in the chapel, but outside the chapel, that little chapel that Francis built because God had called him to restore the faith of that community. In my office, there hangs a picture of Barton W. Stone. He's another one of my spiritual mentors and heroes. If you don't know the name, He and Alexander Campbell are the two leaders that brought about, for the most part, the American Restoration Movement, which produced Churches of Christ. And while I respect Campbell, Stone touches my heart because he was a heart man who believed strongly in the working of the Holy Spirit. And he was a man who who believed strongly that the gospel was for everyone, even the common people, and and worked among them and, and loved them. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, one of the few German clergy who stood up to Hitler, paid the price with his life, is another spiritual hero of faith. Then, of course, not only in person and then in history, but certainly in Scripture, can you find your heroes and let them show you and teach you what faith is all about. In this story we read today is one of my spiritual heroes. He's one of my top five guys. Don't even know his name. He's just the centurion, an unnamed Roman military officer stationed in Capernaum, and yet he is able to teach us so much about what faith is. You know, when we go to heaven, I do believe in hope that we're going to be able to recognize people. I I, I know that we don't have a lot of real graphic description of exactly what the the eternity is going to be like, but it's my belief that that for it to be heaven, we're going to be reunited. And I know all of us have thought about that, especially as we say goodbye to people we love so dearly, and, and we know that someday, someday we're going to get to see those people again. But another great blessing is we're going to get to meet people we never got to meet before. And I know this guy's going to be there, and I'm going to look him up. I just want to thank him for 2,000 years later letting his story shape us, lead us, push us to grow in our faith. It's a brief story, but we learn so much from it. As I said, this is a man who was a Roman military man in charge of a hundred men. Centurion was a great rank to achieve, and you had to be pretty rough and tough and capable man to make it to Centurion. He was obviously a Gentile, probably from some Roman province itself, but he was someone who uh, was, was likely a God-fearer. Now, Y'all know what God-fearers were, don't you? That, that, that class of people who were Gentiles during this time of Jesus, but yet they were attracted to the Jewish faith. They were attracted to the idea of one God. They were attracted to the high ethical and moral standards of the Jewish people. And they were attracted to Jewish worship. 
And the Jewish people in their synagogues made a space for them. There was a certain section where these people were allowed to sit. Even though the Jewish people were not, didn't think they were anyway, supposed to intermingle with the Gentiles, they were touched by the fact that these Gentiles were drawn to their faith and provided for them. Now, uh, I started to tell you, the, the, the sermon title really has nothing to do with where this sermon ended up. And if I was going to retitle it, I probably would title it Chasing Rabbits, because that's what this story kind of makes me do, just go here, 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 and everywhere. But while I was thinking about this this week, it dawned on me that this isn't the only centurion who was a great man of faith. Can you name another centurion who was a God-fearer who came to God? Cornelius, I hear you saying it, right. He was the first outright Gentile convert to Christianity, wasn't he? Yeah. And what about that centurion who stood at the foot of the cross of Jesus? The first person to make the confession at the death of Christ. Surely this man was the Son of God. You know, there must have been something about living the hard and harsh reality of the life of a Roman centurion that opened them up to something better. That opened them up to the idea that there has to be a God. That there has to be some purpose to all of this that really called them to higher morality and higher ethics, and that called them to find the healing and the peace that came in worship of a God like that. However, many God-fearers, like this centurion, hesitated to take that final step to become a proselyte. And most of us realize why, because the final step for a Gentile man to become a proselyte was circumcision, which meant that not only was he changing religions, he was changing ethnicities. He was identifying with a, with a nation of people as opposed to his. And that was tough to do. It was tough. He would probably lose his job. He would lose everything. So they remained simply these God-fears on the side but so much to teach us. One more rabbit, by the way. That's why whenever Jesus began to be preached after the day of Pentecost, that the first people that lined up to get in the door were the God-fearers. Because now they could be enter in and remain their own nationality. They could be their own people that they had grown up being. And the sign of their faith was no longer circumcision, but baptism. Therefore, the gospel found ready and willing listening ears amongst this group of people. Well, this unknown or unnamed, I should say, not unknown, but unnamed centurion that Jesus encounters, well, that's not true. Jesus never sees this guy, does he? Isn't that interesting? That so much happens in this story, and yet Jesus never sees the man, never hears the man. The man never sees Jesus and never hears a word that he speaks. But yet they encounter each other, don't they? This centurion was a man that, that kept so much of the Jewish law. For example, two commandments I want to point out that we know he was keeping. One is the commandment to love strangers or foreigners in the land. Now, I don't know if you're aware of that, but that is a really strong commandment in the Old Testament. 
that God's people have always been called upon to lead the way in embracing people from different nationalities. Different, they're, they're often called aliens in Scripture. I, I try to avoid that language because we tend to think of people with big heads and big round eyes as aliens, and that's really not what he's talking about. Although, if those guys ever show up, I think we're called upon to love them too, okay? Uh, I don't think that'll change a lot of things. But anyway, they call to love the foreigners. Well, for this man, who were the foreigners? The Jews. That's right. Isn't that interesting? Kind of flipped things on its head, didn't it? Now, the Jewish people weren't real good about this at this time because what they were emphasizing was staying away from foreigners. They might contaminate us. Their ideas might filter into our ideas, and therefore, let's stay away from them. But this man got it, and he embraced them. And he embraced them so much to the point that, as the Bible says, he funded the building of the synagogue in Capernaum. Wow. Pat and I stood in the synagogue at Capernaum a few years ago, 20 years ago. My goodness. Anyway, that synagogue is still there, portions of it. The very floor that Jesus stood on and taught and that this centurion paid for is still there. So this man was obviously a generous man and one who embraced people who were different from him. And it really put the Jewish people, the Jewish officials, at 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 kind of a funny situation because whenever he hears that Jesus is around and he knows Jesus can do something for him, he sends the Jewish officials to ask Jesus for a favor. Now think about that because In the Bible, in the New Testament, in the Gospels, who are the people Jesus tangles with the most? The Jewish officials. And yet they have to go to Jesus and ask him to do something. And when they go, they say, this man is worthy. Later on, the man will say he's not worthy, but that's a different story. But this man is worthy. He's done so much for us. Would you come and help? And Jesus says, sure. Now, another thing, that is interesting about this man, is that he also loves his neighbor as himself. He has a slave who is ill. And I want to tell you, slavery is an institution that is terrible, and it really eats into our minds and our hearts. And so glad that in our society we finally woke up and got rid of such an evil thing. But it existed then. And here this slave is ill, he's about to die, and this centurion who has command over all these people, who has had slave after slave after slave. What do you do when a slave gets sick and dies? You get a new one. But not this guy. This guy obviously had a heart. He obviously knew what it was like to love someone and to love someone that was of lower status than himself and to really put himself out for that person. No wonder this man had friends. That's another little thing that you might not catch in the story the first time you read it. Read your Bible. The word friend is used very rarely in the Bible. And yet this man had a whole host of friends that he was able to send out to Jesus and say, Stop, don't come to my house, for I am not worthy. So the man loved foreigners. He was a generous man. He loved his neighbor. He was a humble man you got to love this guy, don't you? But I want to tell you, besides those things that really inform my faith, 
The thing that hits me the hardest right now is that this man understood faith. For he calls Jesus Lord, and he speaks of authority. You heard the story. He said, you know, I know what authority's like. I can snap my fingers and people jump. But I know that you have ultimate authority. And I want to tell you something. I need to hear that. Because I get way too buddy-buddy with Jesus Christ. I get this funny idea that he's around to help me do everything I want to do. That I can just kind of ignore him for a while and then go back to him. And he's going to come running up and say, okay, Tommy, what do you want? What do you need? Jesus is the Son of God. It is through Jesus Christ that the universe was created. And when we come into the presence of Jesus Christ, we come on our knees. Yes, he, 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 he stoops down to bless us. Yes, he loves us. Yes, he offers to be our friend. But we never take that for granted. We always know that when we are in his presence, he is the one in charge. He is the one whom is obeyed. You got to love this guy. Jesus did. He turned to the people following him and said, I haven't found anyone like this in Israel. I haven't found anyone that has this kind of faith in Israel. Do you know who Jesus was talking to when he said that? Peter, Andrew, James, John. If Jesus ranks this guy that high, he's awful high on my list too. Now the interesting thing is that It was this man's faith that opened the door for his servant's healing. That Jesus reached down all the way through society to its lowest rung, a Gentile slave. And that man regained his health. We don't know if that slave believed in Jesus. We don't know if he'd ever heard of Jesus. But the open door was the faith of this man. Two quick lessons. I'm running out of time. I could chase some more rabbits. Anybody else want to run after? Okay, we'll quit. One thing I come away from this story is knowing that as that Gentile slave lay in that house, knowing he was about to die, that there was no hope. And then suddenly his health was restored. He probably thought he was beyond help, but he's never beyond the reach of Jesus. And I don't know where you are today, but sometimes we begin to think, I'm too low. I'm too far away. It's not true. You can never be outside his reach, and he will always reach out to touch you and to make you whole. But the main thing that I carry away from this is the impression of what this centurion's faith did How this centurion's faith was a blessing to the Jewish community, to his friends, and ultimately to his servant himself. That it was through his faith that doors were opened and Jesus was able to walk in. I want to tell you something. Parents, the most important gift you will ever give your children is your faith. I promise you that. Because through your faith, God can work in their lives. And the most important gift you will ever give your grandchildren is your faith. Because your faith can be the open door through which God enters the lives of your grandchildren. And those of you who have friends and co-workers, 
The best thing you can ever give them is to be a person of faith because God can reach through you to them. May God bless us as we seek this faith. And if you are the one whom Jesus is reaching out to touch, as we end this service today, I pray that you'll respond and let him have his blessing in your life. But I also pray that all of us walk out of here knowing that as our faith grows, as our faith deepens, that we go out to open doors for the Lord to enter the lives of those whom we love. Let's stand and sing.